This is In Hindsight, Half a Century of Research Discoveries in Canadian History, presented by Dr. Donald B. Smith and produced by the Ontario Historical Society. Great pleasure to speak today in episode 12 about a very outstanding First Nations family, the Steinhauer family. The central figure is Henry B. Steinhauer. He was born about 1820. His real name is Shawanagizik. He is an Ojibwe or Anishinaabe, a First Nations person, and he was born in the Lake Simcoe area, north of Toronto and grew up there he he was his father died when he was young and so this young uh, I'll, I'll use the word ojibwe for today the, the young ojibwe boy he was um, really about 10 at the time of this what, what this occurred what happened in ontario in the mid 1820s was there was a huge resurgence of well not resurgence but movement um, for Get becoming economically self-sufficient and also adopting to the settler world. And it, this was marked by uh, First Nations people themselves leading this. Uh, a, a Mississauga, those are, Mississauga are, re, they're Ojibwe too, they're Anishinaabe to use their people's own name for themselves. And they're the Ojibwe or Anishinaabe on the North Shore of Lake Ontario. And so they're the ones where this started. And uh, Peter Jones is the central figure. That was episode five. We, we talked about this tremendous uh, outreach by Indigenous Methodists to spread the gospel to their people farther north. And it was very attractive, as, as just to quickly review episode five, it was so appealing because it, by learning how to adjust to the settler society, they could retain their lands, whatever remained of them, and they could defend themselves. So there's a real incentive here and a real response. And it's this group that's up in Lake Simcoe in 1820, Peter Jones and other indigenous preachers with William Case, he was a missionary superintendent, and they had a huge, big camp meeting, a big, big meeting in which a lot of First Nations people attended, actually several hundred. And what the attraction was at first is are the hymns. Uh, Peter Jones was, he was as again in episode five, he was a First Nations person, and he was able, he translated the Methodist hymns and putting them in the context of the culture. Um, in short, they were very appealing because uh, music, very important with the First Nations people, singing and uh, central. And anyways, this the First Nations people were attracted to this meeting, this gathering, and included in that number was um, a mother with her 10-year-old son. Uh, she was a widow. Um, she was very affected. The Christian message was, there were so many similarities. It really was very appealing. And it, it just seemed so familiar, actually, a lot of differences, mind you, but there was something familiar about it. And then this offer to help was so greatly appreciated because up at this point, the, the settler colonists were really not doing too much for the First Nations except taking things. And uh, here was an outreach that was offering them something, and, and there was something very appealing in the values. Um, and so a number of First Nations people 
converted to the message of these indigenous Christians, and one of which was the young boy's mother. And when William Case asked the boy and asked his mother if that would be okay if he went to mission school, yes, by all means. And so after the meeting, he went, William Case took him into his own home. A number of children were as well. He, in his home, he, he, they stayed there at the mission, and uh, then they went to school. Now, Henry, oh, sorry, give me his Shawana Gizik. My goodness, I'm getting ahead of the story. Was very good. He was a very sharp young man and uh, did really well. He, now, he had a grounding very much so in his own culture. There is no question of that. Uh, he was, uh, his grandfather was a religious leader who Shawana Gizik recalled much later how he used to call the family together at certain seasons of the year previous to his feast, which he had annually made to the four gods of the four winds. That's a direct quote from Shawana Gizik. And uh, so he, he had that background. Um, at the same time, he wanted to adjust, to, uh, well, and certainly his mother was in favor of this too, to the settler colonists so that he could they could protect themselves. And here there are these people, there's indigenous people, uh, they're, they're saying many of the values are identical. There's, there are differences, there's no question of it, but there's something um, appealing with it. So um, the young boy went into this with open mind and uh, he, he did very well. And it was totally different. I mean, going to the schools like going to boot camp because it's so regimented. Um, however, I must too, at this point, point out that a lot of my insight into this Shwanagizik, it comes from Isaac Mamamdissa. He was a South African historian who I met well some distant now, 40 years ago. He was doing his PhD in Canada. And Isaac, I met him several times. I was, I know his PhD thesis. And Isaac really makes an important, important contribution because he explains that he was, Shawanda Gizik is a very interesting historical su subject, and I'm quoting directly now, because he was socialized to think and act like a Western Christian gentleman after he had spent his early youth in a traditional Ojibwe culture. That's very nice. I like that because it summarizes it so well. So the young boys at the mission school and well, they, they, they don't, there's no state support. I mean, this is all from church people, donations and uh, concerts. It's very expensive running these places, uh, even in the context of the 1820s and 30s. So they, to raise money, what they did was William Case would take um, young young people uh, and with well they'd be well escorted and all uh, on missionary tours and in 1829 he's only been with them uh, Henry Shabanagizik's uh, 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 only been in the mission for one year but he's one of those boys that's chosen uh, there are four boys between eight and twelve and two teenage girls and notice that the Methodists are out for women's education too it's not just men there's very <laughs> and it, it, there's there's a lot of positive aspects to this uh, anyways they are the four boys and two teenage girls um, with William case and I think it was uh, some indigenous Christians as well they they go down uh, to the states and uh, New York City uh, Washington, D.C., Philadelphia. And what they do is that you, the young boys, basically, it's, it's, it's to raise money for the missions. And uh, the young boys um, sing. They sing hymns. And uh, that's very popular to the audiences. Uh, one boy has a 
very, very clear voice, very, very, uh, really outstanding. And that is this young Shawana Gizek. Um, and so in Philadelphia, and here's where things get really interesting. In Philadelphia, uh, the Methodist practice was that if you paid for the education of a young indigenous student, then that young indigenous student would adopt your name. And Shawana Gizek did indeed, uh, the offer was made and accepted that his education would be paid for um, no, this is not just meaning the mission school. This is like farther on, and um, on that, that with that condition, he uh, his name was changed. So Wanagishik became <laughs> Steinhauer, uh, Henry. Well, Henry B. Steinhauer is his full name. That now is the name which I'll refer to him as, and he would be about uh, around ten years old at the time. And what is so precious about this is, in Philadelphia, there's a very famous portrait artist. And his name was John Nagel, really celebrated. And he did a portrait of Shiwana Gizik. And uh, it's the last time you'll see Shiwana Gizik written um, because after that is Henry B. Steinhauer. So we have the portrait. Um, it, it's actually now at Glenbow, the Glenbow Museum in Calgary, which is fantastic. It's a, it's a, it was a work of art. And the fact that it's Henry B. Steinhauer is even extra. Now, Shawana Gizek adopted to the new environment the complete antithesis of his Ojibwe or Anishinaabe upbringing. And here's the routine. A trumpet, this is the mission now, um, a trumpet sounded at 5 a.m. on a winter morning and 4 o'clock in the summer. At half past 6 in the summer and half past 7 in the winter, the children proceeded through their tightly organized routine of meals at specific hours religious and academic training, and daily physical labor. <laughs> and then at 9 p.m., the horn sounds again as a signal to prepare for rest. What a routine, my gosh. Well, Shawana Gizek, now Henry B. Steinhauer, adjusts to that, and he's good. Well, they, they, they want to send him on. He's not going to stop this. The mission school is pretty elementary stuff, and he, this boy's ready for something more. So he's sent off to the um, a seminary, a Methodist, well, that's called the high school, that's really what it was, outside of Syracuse, Syracuse, New York. And he studies there, gets good training in reading, writing, arithmetic, and grammar, but also the Methodists are very strong in practical education. He's given a background in gardening, carpentry, and construction. So these are, these are, these are very... This training is for all-rounders. This and Joanna Gizek or Henry B. Steinhauer, he was an excellent student. Now, why, why are the Methodists? Why is William Case? He's staying at William Case's house. He and his wife. Why is he so keen on this? Well, William Case is he, he's he's very concerned about the First Nations. They're they're. As episode five, we talked about it. It was a bad time, uh, being hit by aggressive. Uh, intrusions into their lands by settlers and um, really the seizure of the resources and the diminishing of the trapping possibilities, the cutting down of the forests, and then disease wrecked havoc in their ranks. They were really, really in bad shape. Case was affected by that. He was concerned. He wanted to do something. He stood, he stood up and did something. Now, Case um, he's got this talented boy. He's a promising boy. And what they want to do is the goal is they want to, well, I mean, honestly, every self-interest, uh, certainly, they want translators, teachers of schools, interpreters, and ministers. They want to build on this indigenous church 
and make it stronger. Well, Henry is, uh, he was, he was good. It, it, when he comes back to Canada, he goes to the Methodist College, which had just been established in Canada, the equivalent of the school he was in the United States at. And at this, this school actually later becomes Victoria College, which is now a, one of the colleges at the University of Toronto. Well, he attended the, the Methodist College in Canada and um, actually in Coburg, Ontario. And he received instruction in Greek and Latin as well as the regular subjects. He was obviously headed for glory. Back in Southern Ontario, this uh, southern, the education proceeds, and, um, well, a gentleman took particular interest in him, uh, a young minister whose name was Edgerton Ryerson. He later became the founder of the public school education in Ontario. And Edgerton Ryerson took special interest in Henry Steinhauer's college work. Well, Henry Steinhauer and his wife, Jessie, they never forgot this. They named one of their sons, Edgerton Ryerson Steinhauer. After his college training, so rare for an Indigenous person at that time, Henry worked, as William Case had hoped, as a teacher, translator, and interpreter. Then in his mid-30s, he became an ordained Methodist minister and was selected for missionary outreach. In fact, he was selected to go to the Northwest, or to use the current term, to Alberta. That was a section of the Northwest that he was dispatched to. So he's ordained. He did prior work in mission stations with his, he married his, his wife. Jesse was a, a, a Woods Cree from Norway House. And he, he, well, he was in Norway House and several other mission stations in northern Manitoba. But then his big job was to start this mission in what is now Alberta at, at a place called White, Whitefish Lake. And it was a good location. He was pleased with it. The mission that was chosen, the site, was close to the northern border of the prairie. And there still were buffalo. So they could go out onto the prairie. And secondly, they were just beyond the reach of the Blackfoot raiders. The Blackfoot were the Crees, uh, the, well, longstanding hostility between those two groups. And Whitefish Lake was just beyond the Blackfoot reach. So that was another good reason for it. Oh, finally, the soil was good. And even more so, there was good fishing in the lake. Whitefish Lake tells you that. Well, Henry Steinhauer, he knew what was coming up next. The Northwest was, well, there wasn't, there wasn't a railroad. It was tough to get out there. I mean, very, there was not, it wasn't even treaties yet. So, but he knew they'd follow. Um, and, and the First Nations population would be unbelievably outnumbered by indige, non-Indigenous people in short order, just as it had been in Southern Ontario. The answer was, Henry B. Steinhauer firmly believed, it's what he'd seen. In upper in Ontario or as upper or Upper Canada as it was then called, he'd seen what the Indigenous Christians had done. They built, um, they'd worked towards economic self sufficiency against terrific obstacles, and that's what he was going. They set out to do at Whitefish Lake. Well, on the religious side, he, he stressed the similarities between Cree religious beliefs and Christianity. That was the religious sector. On the economic, he pressed the need for self-sufficiency and farming. And this is the first, Whitefish Lake is the first farming community in what is now Alberta. And they succeeded. Amazing determination. Amazing, it really, truly. Uh, it was a success. One of the reasons being 
well, well, of course, Stein, Henry B. Steiner and his wife Jessie were incredible. But more than that is the chief of Whitefish Lake, and his name was Packan. Pacan, Pacan, it's a better pronunciation. And Pacan was very much in support of all this. And he valued Henry Steinhauer, who was his, his advisor on Treaty 6, which was the treaty signed in 1876, by which the central, uh, present-day central Saskatchewan and Alberta were, uh, the, that was the, the treaty for that area. Pacan endorsed his minister's message of good schools, economic development, secure title to their land, and the importance of self-government. These people had become Christian. That did not in any way mean they ceased to be First Nations. They were First Nations Christians. Okay, we reached the point we've entry, entry of a young, uh, well, she wasn't, I couldn't say young because she was in her mid-30s, uh, well, mature, uh, very capable school teacher and well-trained and really been, had worked in mission schools in Ontario. Uh, and she came, she selected to come out West to help at Whitefish Lake. It was an arduous journey. There was no railway. It's unbelievably, was unbelievably complex, but she did it. And she came out, uh, mind you, she had a role model for her religious enthusiasm. That was her younger sister, Lottie and <laughs> Elizabeth Barrett, once said that Lottie had read through the entire Old and New Testament cover to cover 15 times. So believe you me, these people are, are they're very, very keen Methodists. Uh, but there's more to it. Don't be deceived. This, she's a very smart woman. And she she sized up the situation. She stayed with the Steinhauers. And she started, the school was just put into high gear. And she very quickly realizes that they're not going to go anywhere unless she learns Cree. So she applies herself to it and is, is teaching how to write Cree in the, with the Roman alphabet within a year and is using Cree. And the First Nations people, the Whitefish Lake Cree, are delighted by her attitude. In fact, this is very precious because the, the real problem with um, Indigenous history is, is written records because there's so few of them. The cultures are oral. And that's why Indigenous studies is absolutely, crucially important. And that gives you access to the oral traditions. I, Someone like me, and I'm an Indigenous scholar, I don't have that access. And um, anyways, what, what I do have, though, is written records. And here we're so blessed because um, I just by chance found this. It's in 1886. This is about 10 years after Elizabeth Barrett was in uh, at Whitefish. And... Chief Packen makes a statement. He says how good she was. I want to read it to you because it's just, it's so powerful. Because uh, once again, just remember, this is not, this is very, very tough to get uh, citations like this. But he was so grateful. He taught the, the students in the school to read in the, within the Roman alphabet in in. Cree and uh, learned the language herself. Uh, they saw the students making ma rapid progress in mathematics and, and uh, other school subjects that she had introduced. And uh, that was very impressive. And Chief Packen remembered that. He recalled her two years at Whitefish nearly a decade later. Here's the direct quote. Oh, thank heavens I found this. Here we go. We often talk about her in our camps and about the good she did for us. Our children loved her for all the acts of kindness she did for them. And our women looked upon her with affection. 
What a tribute. Remarkable woman. When she showed up, she told Henry and Jesse, he said, I'm going to train. The two middle boys were ideal. They were teenagers. Just the right time for, for this big educational push. She told uh, Henry and Jesse, I'm going to prepare these boys to enter college. Extraordinary. In Ontario. And she did. Really? Well, she did her best, did her best, and uh, was there two years, and all's going well. But eventually, it, um, it's it's time for uh, she moves to another mission. Eventually, Stony Lakota at Morley, uh, outside of Calgary, um, fifty kilometers west of Calgary. But that's the important point is that Robert and Edgerton, these teenage boys, were ready to go, and they went. I mean, they ride bike the railway. They go to. Winnipeg by horseback, really, or I mean, it's all a real huge adventure, and they but they do it, and then eventually after that they get to Coburg, which is where the college is, and they enter there. Um, now the problem for Edgerton was that his dad notified him shortly after his arrival. He did uh, the equivalent of high school in Coburg very quickly. He was well trained, but he had to go back to Whitefish because uh, there was a desperate need for a, a teacher and. Uh, this is, and well, he did it. Uh, so that was too bad. But Robert was able to stay, and Robert stayed. He did extremely well at college. He entered in 1883. That's like university level, and uh, he was ex he was excellent. Very popular as a football player, a runner, a gifted singer with a deep bass voice, um, and he was. So popular amongst the students, he was elected class president at the end of his third year. Now this is. Really mind-boggling. Thanks to Elizabeth Barrett, this young man would go all the way. Poor and Robert and Edgerton got a good start in life too. Eventually, Edgerton would become an ordained minister too. He studied the theology and was ordained in the Methodist Church. And Robert did too after his BA. So, Robert, oh, he's a very proud First Nations person. He does an essay for the college magazine, Acto Victoriana, in which he points out the Western First Nations disappointments with the treaties and asks for better treatment. Uh, Robert would stay consciously on the side of Native rights. and In fact, 30 years later, he would be the inter an interpreter for a new pan-Indian political organization, the League of Indians of Canada. And that is a, an episode in the old-fashioned radio series, which uh, will come up in, in a short while. But he was, he, so I mean, his heart's there. He's for Indigenous rights and he keeps at it. And he's got a BA now and he becomes a missionary, a, a minister and goes into the mission work, wants to spread this word to others, serves in a number of Western missions. And uh, Edgerton becomes a minister too. He, he also does the same. Uh, now we're going to fast track to now. Uh, Robert was so good, they wouldn't let him retire. Um, he, had, he stayed in the harness to his death in 1941. His last posting was Saddle Lake, um, which is near St. Paul, Alberta. Uh, but anyways, what we are blessed with, again, it's, it's just serendipity. I mean, happenstance, good luck, whatever you want to call it. And Ralph Steinhauer, who became the first Indigenous Lieutenant Governor of Alberta, 1974-1979, Ralph Steinhauer was, he knew his uncles. He, he knew his uncles quite well. He was just, as a young man, 
And uh, he gave an historical talk in Edmonton in 1955. Uh, Robert had died in 1941. Edgerton had died in the early 1930s. So they weren't around. But Ralph remembered their stories and what, what, he, what, the, what they were all about. And in a talk at the Historical Society of Alberta in 1955, he recalled them. Now, great. How do I know about this? Well, I'm sure lucky on this one. My good friend, Hugh Dempsey, who is also, he's been mentioned in episodes two now, but he will be the subject of a special episode coming up. Hugh Dempsey was there. A young man. He's what? What would he be? He's 26. But he, he just, he loved First Nations history, Indigenous affairs, and history in general. He was there and he took notes. And Hugh, gentleman that he was, shared them with me. 10 years ago or so. So I'm able now to go inside the minds of Robert and Edgerton, thanks to these notes taken in 1955. This is so friggin' unique. It's wonderful. So here we go. Ralph listened and heard and wrote what he learned. And Edgerton was the one that he Robert Robert was very forthcoming and lots of good information, but Edgerton was really said a little bit more. The respected Cree minister, um, now quoting what Edgerton told the audience and you recorded, he told them, he told young people, he would always tell them the importance of sports. Edgerton said, never let yourself think that you are not as good as the white man. Edgerton also challenged the young people and planted seeds of ambition. Quote, this is from Hughes' notes of Edgerton saying, if your people don't perk up and follow the white man's way in business, you'll find yourself left out in the cold. Can't you, be, can't you become doctors, lawyers, or businessmen? Well, of course you could. That's Edgerton's message. Edgerton also revealed something of his inner self to his great-nephew. He stressed, that's Ralph, he stressed to him the amazing similarity between Christian teachings and native beliefs. The two people shared similar spiritual concepts. Speaking of the Sundance, and this is an ordained minister, this indigenous man told Ralph, quote, of the Sundance, there was a bit of torture there, but it was no worse than training for the commandos. They also had the ceremonial dances. There was a good deal of paganism, whooping and hollering, but you know, I'm still an Indian. Actually, I can't say too much against it. There were some great prayers said, felt and sincere. The Sundance was a form of, of worship. Edgerton saw no contradiction in the fact that he identified himself as both Christian and Cree. Okay. Regin dies. Robert's still at the mission. And in 1937, gets a great honor a high honor from his church. He was invited to go to Victoria. Now, Victoria is located at the University of Toronto. It's a federated college. And there's the theology school there, Emmanuel College. He's invited to come. And in 1937, the college's 100th anniversary, they wanted to give him a doctor of divinity. He's the first First Nations person, in my knowledge, that obtained a doctor of divinity. He was given it on uh, April in April 1937 from his alma mater, now affiliated with the University of Toronto and relocated from Coburg to Toronto. He became the first Native person in Canada to receive an honorary Doctor of Divinity. Both Robert and Edgerton, Ryerson Steinhauer, saw education as the key to freedom for the First Nations. 
instrumental in their success was the vital contribution a non-Indigenous Ontario mission teacher made in their lives. The hillside cemetery overlooking the historic McDougall Memorial Church on the Stony Nakoda Territory, west of Calgary, contains a large gray headstone. Its inscription reads, quote, Sacred to the memory of Elizabeth A. Barrett, for many years Indian mission teacher, died at Morley, Alberta, February 8, 1888. Upon arriving at Whitefish Lake in 1875, Elizabeth had promised Henry and Jesse that he would train both Robert and Edgerton. And this is a direct quote. It's in, it's in a, a mission document of the time. He, she's, it's recorded that she said that she would train them so that they could enter any high school or college in Canada. The devoted Methodist mission teacher fulfilled her promise. Thank you.